Hello there, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. As with my Monetizing Media newsletter, my goal is to dissect business opportunities across the media, entertainment, and gaming sector. I'm joined by a leading entrepreneur, executive, or investor in each episode as we dig into a case study on their company, an investment thesis they have, or other tactical insights on business models, pricing, and creating loyal fans. I'm very excited to share today's conversation with you. For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the real-life stories of different people and historic events. Nonfiction books and documentary films have been a home for my brain, often inspiring me and speaking to me even more so than fictional stories. In the past, I've been dismayed that despite their cultural impact, documentaries were almost always a labor of love, with little to no financial reward for the creators and investors in them. That has changed very quickly. As some of the most popular content on streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, documentary films have rapidly become a lucrative business. Producers and their investors can earn millions by crafting a documentary that inspires people to take action on a critical political or cultural issue. There's an exciting alignment of financial incentive and social impact. Few entrepreneurs are seizing the moment better than Bryn Mooser. Bryn was a humanitarian aid worker and documentary filmmaker who founded the virtual reality studio Riot in 2012 to share news and stories in the VR format. He sold Riot to Verizon in 2016 and left in December 2018 to launch XTR, a Los Angeles-based production company focused on documentary films and other nonfiction series. XTR has been aggressively financing a large slate of nonfiction films and TV shows, and has a number of big-name investors behind it, including Thrive Capital's Josh Kushner, Airbnb co-founder Joe Gebbia, former AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, and iconic Hollywood producer Norman Lear. So, Bryn, I'm, I'm excited to talk, um, uh, talk to you here and, and dig into more of what you guys are building at XTR. Um, I think the most interesting place to start to set the context, though, would be... Um, you know, maybe you explain to us a little bit about how documentary filmmaking as a business has worked kind of up to this point in the more recent boom. Yeah, well, I mean, first, I'm just really excited to be having this conversation with you. I'm very passionate about what's happening in the documentary industry. So uh, any chance to, to discuss it and talk about it is, uh, is a good day for me. Um, yeah, look, I think that there is this radical kind of revolutionary moment that's happening in documentary films right now. Um, you know, before, um, you know, this moment, and I'll say this moment is the last, like, let's say five years, um, as streaming platforms have started to give distribution to documentaries, it was just really hard to be uh, able to watch a documentary. You had to go to an art house movie theater or like the corner of a, a video rental house, or maybe the teacher like wheels in a TV and VCR and shows you a documentary. Now you turn on Netflix and there's a documentary uh, on the trending section right next to Avengers Endgame. You know, like that's a radical moment that I, I don't think enough people in the industry have stopped and gone, wow, this is now um, a moment where, you know, uh, distribution has been equalized with some of the biggest blockbuster films to documentaries. Th that's really exciting. I'm curious, has, uh, aside from just the distribution, has something else changed in all of a sudden documentaries becoming so much more highly valued by kind of the, the distribution platforms? I, you know, look, I think this moment is sort of a perfect storm of a couple things that have happened, right? You know, one is this, you know, distribution moment through the streaming platforms. And the other one is that you're getting a generation that has grown up on reality television and YouTube, you know? And so, um, you know, nonfiction and fiction, the line is blurred. You know, it's not like, um, you know, when I, when I was growing up, 
um, you know, a documentary was like something you would see in a classroom. Um, now there's a generation that's grown up and they see reality TV, they see YouTube, they see uh, traditional television and it all sort of looks the same. And so I think that it's just audiences are more sophisticated. So that's one part. And then the other part is that, you know, and I think this is across the board for a lot of creators. Um, technology has just enabled um, the high quality cameras to get in the hands of creators, right? And so, um, you know, again, for the first time, you have um, people who are able to tell their own stories or create documentaries uh, from what's happening around them um, using tools that they can afford. You know, so to give an example, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted to make a high quality documentary, it was really expensive. You know, it was expensive to find a 16 millimeter camera or a three chip camera at that point. Um, and now, you know, you've got a 4K camera on your iPhone um, and you're able to get that out uh, whether it's, you know, traditional broadcast or streaming or also online. I mean, I think if we take this current moment we're in, um, these protests that are happening around George Floyd were enabled because one brave girl, Daniela Frazier, turned her iPhone on and made 10 minutes. That's probably the most powerful documentary um, that this generation has ever seen. You know, it's just it's just an entirely new moment where people like Daniela Frazier can become uh, filmmakers and can change the world through their films. Was there a specific documentary that you look at as the tipping point of this whole boom of the last five years or so? Well, I think that last year was a really big year for documentaries. Um, you had Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, you had Free Solo, you had the Michael Jackson Leaving Neverland, R. Kelly, um, and then Netflix brought a lot of really powerful nonfiction television from Making a Murderer to The Keeper. Um, and so I think that it's really been kind of uh, these type of stories uh, that have truly captured the imagination. I mean, when you think about the things that uh, we talk about with our friends or our family the next day, um, from an entertainment perspective, you know, a lot of the time it's nonfiction. You know, it's a, it's a nonfiction podcast story like Serial that you heard, or it's Making a Murderer, or it's R. Kelly or Michael Jackson. Like, we're far more um, likely to talk about uh, you know, Tiger King on Netflix than the latest season of Ozark. You know, like, that's pretty crazy. Um, certainly when you think about how much more expensive and difficult Ozark is to make um, than, you know, Tiger King is to make. And so I think that, you know, we saw a big year with documentaries in the last two years. Um, then, you know, something extraordinary happened with lockdown, which is that the things that people watched in lockdown was The Last Dance, Tiger King, Beastie Boys Story, Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and then the third piece is documentaries are up in production right now. People are still shooting them and making them, um, and they know how to make them um, kind of in this new moment that we're in too. So this is a powerful time um, for the industry. When did the streaming wars uh, really turn to documentaries in terms of you know, Netflix and, and Hulu and everyone else getting more aggressive and buying them up, bidding more money for them? Look, I think that um, certainly when we saw the growth of uh, documentary series on these platforms, you know, whether it's Finding Neverland on HBO or whether it's uh, Making a Murderer on Netflix, I think that the more and more that these films started to trend and people talked about them, it really became um, a powerful part of the strategy for these. I mean, look, HBO... Um, arguably created the short documentary, the modern short documentary industry as we know it. Uh, I was nominated for my first Academy Award with HBO for a film 
we made called Body Team 12. So, you know, they are the pioneers in this space. Um, but certainly everybody paid attention to how successful they did. Um, and they jumped on. And so, um, you know, when uh, Sheila Nevins and HBO uh, were getting time after time nominated for Best Short Documentary, um, everybody else paid attention. And now you see Nat Geo is in there. You see um, Netflix every year picking up the Oscar. So it's definitely, um, you know, changing a lot. And there's a lot of new voices on there. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a really exciting moment. You know, I think for the first time ever, there's a real business in documentaries. You know, it's, it's not like uh, you make a film, it takes you 10 years to make it, you hope it gets in a couple theaters and goes to Sundance. Um, now you can make a film, turn it around quickly, and there's more platforms than ever that are buying this. Uh, and I think that's just, just gonna keep growing. It's really the beginning. Yeah, there, there are a number of big names in the tech world um, who invested behind you to to get uh, XTR off the ground, like Josh Kushner, yeah. Tim Armstrong, Joe Gebbia. Uh, can you outline for us a little bit how the financing works for documentaries as far as, do you operate out of like a five-year fund that you raise? What's it look like from an investor perspective? When I was at my, uh, my last company was called Riot, which I sold to Verizon and spent three years helping to build out Verizon Media. When it was time to leave um, my company there and Verizon, to me, when I surveyed the landscape, I've been making documentaries for a long time. I love them. I just saw this huge boom that was happening, right? I really, it, some people call it the golden age of documentaries. I think it's just the beginning of this sort of moment. Uh, but what was clear was that there is not a leading studio in the space. You know, there's not an A24 or there's not a Neon for documentaries, um, at, just pure documentaries. And so I really thought there was an opportunity to build that. How do we build um you know, a studio that people love, that people, um, when they see the logo, they get excited about, that feels cultural um, and is a, a way to kind of capture this moment that's happening. And so I went to friends of mine who are passionate about documentaries and passionate about media, but also investors, raised money to start the company. And those investors put money into the company almost like it was a media startup. Uh, but we have two vehicles at XTR to um, get people to invest in our films. One is called XTR Fast Forward, and that's an equity fund where investors who are interested in, in documentary to make a return on can invest through us. Um, we've got a bunch of really big blockbuster documentaries that are coming out that we'll be announcing soon from that fund. And the other one is called XTR uh, Film Society, which is a 501c3 uh, vehicle that we're able to work with um, uh, philanthropists, um, people who are passionate about certain topic areas who want to get um, involved and help make a documentary. And so they're able to um, give money through grants uh, through that uh, nonprofit arm. So really, that's like the two ways that people can really invest into the films. But, um, you know, we have our main investors who have invested and supported XTR. And then we're always talking to other people who want to get involved in documentary films, either as a great investment um, or from a philanthropy standpoint. What are we talking about here in, in comparing um, kind of the production costs and then the return on investments or selling price for documentaries five years ago versus today? There's no even comparison. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a night and day difference um, because you have so many new people uh, and so many big buyers. I, you know, you talk about this all the time here at what this moment is, but you know, just, you know, just to reiterate it, you have the biggest companies in the universe, Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, Facebook, 
betting on premium content as a, a really important part of their business strategy going forward. Like th that's amazing, right? And so what that means is that you have um, the backdrop for streaming wars to happen, and that means that Apple's got a great get a got a lot of great content. YouTube's got to find their content. Facebook, you know, Quibi, Snap, um, you know, I'm sure TikTok soon, right? It's like you're you're there's a perfect storm of um, companies that need great content, um, and there's a lot of great content creators out there. But it means that it's driving up the price for those premium ones. So, you know, to give an example, this year at Sundance. Um, most of the biggest celebrities that people were talking about were there to support documentaries. You know, uh, Taylor Swift was there, Hillary Clinton was there, Kerry Washington was there. They were all supporting uh, uh, documentaries. Ron Howard had a documentary that he directed, right? And then the biggest sale, or one of the biggest sales out of Sundance was Boys State, which Apple bought for around $13 million. So it was a watershed year, uh, both in terms of like the excitement conversation and the talking about and then in terms of sale prices and if I had to bet um, next year at Sundance documentaries are going to be front and center because we have had this strange year where production has basically grinded to a halt for indie film but documentaries have kept going so this is uh, this is a, uh, 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 an accelerant for the industry of what just happened yeah I, I saw the uh, the Billie Eilish documentary Looks like it sold to Apple for a $25 million price tag. Some of these these prices are quite substantial relative to anything you heard of in the past for a documentary. Yeah, totally. I, there was a big sale for the Rihanna documentary. Um, there was a, you know, of course, big, big, big price tags for the Michelle Obama documentary, um, the Taylor Swift documentary. Um, and then, you know, uh, The Last Dance was an expensive documentary to do. But look at what the result of that was. It's like the number one most streamed uh, thing on, on, on ESPN. Um, and I think that you're going to see a lot more of those type of projects. From a business standpoint, is, is the project typically over when a documentary sells to a distributor? Or is there a backend that uh, some of these docs are getting? Or B, are you starting to see opportunities like you'd have with a very successful film where there are kind of offshoots that come from the fill itself right like you think of franchises where there's merch there's mm. a game spin-off there's all these sorts of things um yes are you seeing any of that happen i i i think a hundred percent two parts about this one is anything is possible right now coming out of a covid right this is like a after you kind of get through the painful moment of this the suffering the challenges that are going to happen the other side of this from an entertainment industry perspective is everything flipped upside down um, and new rules being written, new leaders emerging, old companies crumbling. I mean, it really is a massive uh, a revolution that is, is, is coming. Um, and so that means that there is a time to rethink distribution. We're certainly rethinking theatrical. Um, and you're already seeing leaders emerge from that. Like um, Neon, for instance, is doing some of the most I think cutting edge and smart uh, new ways of distribution uh, for their films, their documentary Space, uh, Spaceship Earth. Uh, they partnered with a food delivery service and did a thing where they would send you a free meal when you downloaded the movie at home. You know, it was like a cool, interesting thing. And that's just kind of like some of kind of how people are rethinking this moment. So I think there's, um, you know, a time that we can really rethink everything that happened before and rebuild it. 
But then also like uh, your question about, um, you know, do you see merch and things like that? I mean, I'll, I'll give uh, to Tiger King is a good example. I mean, every single meme, internet joke, text to friends was a Tiger King, you know, Snapchat filter or a funny video. I mean, it was, it got into your culture um, in a way that I think no uh, television show could do. And now look, they're doing a Tiger King TV show with Nick Cage. Um, and I think that even if you look back at some of the success of the documentaries from a couple years ago, you had Apollo 11. Then you had First Man with Ryan Gosling. You had Won't You Be My Neighbor. Then you had Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks. You had RBG. Then you had whatever the RBG uh, narrative film was. So I think that it's, it's really changing um, and anything's possible right now. Am I too seeing, optimistic about the moment? Is this too, <laughs> am I too excited about it? I'm just, I, I think it's pretty radical. <laughs> no, I mean, I, there's certainly data to support your excitement, uh, at least yeah. thus far. Um, are, are you seeing this, um, this you know, tide lifting all boats, so to speak, across the documentary world? Or when we're talking about this boom, are we really talking about specific categories of documentaries in terms of the style or the topic areas? I think from a production standpoint, you're going to see a lot of legacy companies not surviving this moment. So I think you're going to see a new set of leaders emerge um, and an old sort of fall away. Um, and the hope is with that, those new leaders who emerge, also within that comes a new set of filmmakers, uh, diversity, new voices, people who didn't have a chance um, before. So. That I have a lot of hope um, for, for what that disruption from an industry standpoint and a business standpoint means. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that it's going to be a moment that people are really looking at what comes out post-COVID, you know, like what happens when uh, people can really get back to work and who has kind of weathered this storm. Uh, but I'm hopeful that the other side sees kind of a, a new crop of of filmmakers um, and voices that are going to bring great stories to the screen. And then in terms of, of topics, you know, I think that sports is, is very rich. Music is going to be a big, big, big category going forward, especially as the time we spend driving in our cars and listening to the radio changes. Um, so, and live music opportunities change. So I would think, look, look to that. Um, but, you know, also almost every category can kind of be richly mined uh, for true stories. To end with that, um, what are the big upcoming stories that we'll be able to expect from XTR? Well, we have um, a documentary that we've just partnered with Neon on, and that's uh, Neon's new uh, label, Super LTD, which is coming out uh, soon. We're about to announce when it is. It's called You Cannot Kill David Arquette, and it's about David Arquette's uh, wrestling career. Uh, we were at Sundance uh, with a couple films uh, that we we're really proud to be able to support. Um, one is called Empty Pockets, Bloody Nose. Uh, the other one is called Mucho Mucho More, which is coming to Netflix soon. Uh, a film called The Fight about the ACLU um, and a film about the March for Our Lives kids called uh, Us Kids. So those are projects from ours to look out for. And then we'll be announcing a bunch of kind of big blockbuster docs, uh, hopefully uh, in the middle of the summer. Excited to see them. We could have a virtual screening. I'll send you a meal. <laughs> uh, well, Bryn, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Monetizing Media Podcast. To keep learning more tactical insights on the media, entertainment, and gaming industry, subscribe to my Monetizing Media newsletter at monetizingmedia.com.